So Money episode 492, Eric Dunn, CEO of Quicken. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. A few weeks ago, I got a delivery from my new sponsor, HelloFresh, and I couldn't be more excited. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Whether you're a busy couple, a family running around with no time to shop, or just someone who wants to cook more, you need HelloFresh. Here's how it works. HelloFresh creates and sends you delicious recipes and all the pre-measured ingredients to cook with sent to you in an insulated box. I recently tried their Fatouche salad kit. Sounds like Farnoosh. It took me just 30 minutes from opening the box to sitting down and enjoying my healthy meal. And HelloFresh's recipes are reviewed by a registered dietitian to make sure they're nutritionally balanced. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, go to HelloFresh.com and enter so money when you subscribe. They're currently offering customers a choice between their classic box, a veggie box, or their family box. And you can check out their upcoming menus on their website. Visit HelloFresh.com and enter so money when you subscribe for $35 off your first week of deliveries. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi, November 7th, episode 491. Just nine more episodes until we hit 500. Woohoo! Can you believe it? I, I'm, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to do that day. Like, I, I feel like I should go on a holiday or have a celebration. I don't know. Well, maybe we'll do something cool on the internet on the grand old World Wide Web and do some sort of live uh, celebration. So stay tuned for that. Question for you. Are you one of those people who relies on technology to help track your spending and pay your bills in a timely manner? I think most of us are raising our hands, right? We we do something, whether it's looking at our online bank statement, it's using Mint, it's using uh, other sorts of software. Maybe you're using Quicken, Well, today the company's CEO, Eric Dunn, is on the show and he's been an avid user since 1985 and has been with the company since its early days, even writing some of Quicken's code back in the 80s. He joined Intuit, Quicken's previous owner, back in 1986 as employee number four. So let me just... Let that sink in because imagine being employee number four, five, even employee number 100 at what will then go on to be one of the most successful multi-billion dollar revenue companies in Silicon Valley. Yeah, just let that sink in. Okay. So over the course of his 20 years at Intuit, he served as a CFO through the 1993 IPO and merger with Chipsoft was the first general manager of the Quicken business and was into its first chief technology officer. So he's had many different C-level positions. And in 2000, Eric retired from Intuit to go on to pursue a second career in technology investing. And earlier this year, he became the CEO of Quicken Inc., the standalone private company after teaming up with its uh, purchaser, HIG Capital. Eric has some incredible perspective. I mean, he's been in the fintech space for over 30 years. So what has that perspective taught him and how has Quicken grown and evolved over these three decades? What can we expect from Quicken in the new year, in the forthcoming years, especially now that it's an independent company? And truth be told, there are some improvements to be made. 
And Eric's own financial mistakes. He comes clean on So Money, as do all my guests. So you don't want to miss this. Here's Eric Dunn. Eric Dunn, welcome to So Money. Great to have you. Thanks. It's wonderful to be on your podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. It's timely. You know, just this year, uh, you, there was an announcement that Quicken um, is now independent, no longer with Intuit, uh, working to improve upon a now, what is it, 30-year-old product? The first version of Quicken came out in December 1984, so it's over 30 years. Wow. Um, it's a, a venerable software with uh, uh, a great you know, a great tradition behind it and hopefully a bright future ahead as well. Well, you are very attached to Quicken. I mean, this was really your baby. You were employee number four at Intuit. And I read that you were um, someone who was very much behind the scenes working on some of the uh, programming for Quicken. So tell us how you would describe its evolution over the last now, 32 years, given that, you know, technology has advanced so much, I think Americans and your user base is probably now in a, in a place where they're a little bit more aware of uh, at least what they need and how they like to use technology. So tell us what the evolution has been like and what's ahead. Sure. So, you know, Quicken got started in a different era. The personal computer was just becoming popular. Uh, and of course, it was before certainly the internet, and before most people had any form of connectivity, even dial-up connectivity. So, uh, you know, we built a software product around uh, a world of paper-based finances, if you can remember that far back, and maybe <laughs> that was before many <laughs> were born. Uh, and, no, it uh, wasn't. We, You're not, <laughs> but you are dating me a little bit, <laughs> but I was already born, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, you know, we built a highly successful software business uh, around solving uh, personal finance management on a personal computer uh, in the 80s and, and, and early 90s. Uh, it was, you know, Quicken was one of the top selling uh, software apps then as now. I think we probably sold, you know, 100 million units over the years. Uh, I mean, wow. some including, you know, distribution with hardware. There were years we'd sell five or 10 million. So it was, you know, definitely a high volume, very successful product. I uh, and. You know, then a couple of things happened. One that was, you know, very fortunate is Quicken gave birth to QuickBooks. So QuickBooks is in some ways a descendant uh, of, of Quicken. Uh, our early surveys of Quicken software revealed that half the people who were using it were using it to manage the finances for small businesses. And the reason was because it was hard to use accounting software. So we took that thought at Intuit and built a separate product, QuickBooks, which has gone on to be a hugely successful you know, part of, uh, of, of Intuit, the ongoing company. You know, Intuit today is a four, four or $5 billion revenue company. About half of that is, uh, is the QuickBooks business. So Quicken gave birth to QuickBooks and sort of indirectly helped get Intuit also into the TurboTax business because of the adjacency between uh, personal finance and tax. Intuit acquired Chipsoft in 1993. And that's the other kind of foundation of the company, the Intuit company, as it is today. So Indirectly, you know, from a business perspective, Quicken gave birth to, you know, both, uh, you know, the, the core components of the you know, Intuit company, which is a $25 billion market cap entity today. At the same time, you know, Quicken um, evolved with the financial world. So sometime in the mid-90s, uh, uh, online banking sort of happened and <laughs> people gained access to their finances uh, with a web browser for the first time. And so, uh, you know, 
on the one hand, that was you know, helpful for Quicken because at the same time that banks were building websites, they were in many cases building connectivity to work with Quicken and its competitor, Microsoft Money, that made the product a lot more valuable. But at the same time, you know, banks were doing a nice job of building standalone capabilities. And I'd say the first couple of years, the online banking websites were pretty limited. But by around 2000, you could do a lot of stuff on almost any bank's website, any credit card website. So uh, with that, the role of Quicken uh, and its competitor, Microsoft Money, began to evolve to more towards what it is today. So <laughs> I think we see uh, a financial technology landscape for consumers where there are some excellent free options for almost every consumer in America. Obviously, they can use their bank's website and their mobile products, including the Mint products still at, uh, at Intuit, which do a great job of uh, you know, tracking simple finances. But at the same time, um, there are millions or even tens of millions of families and households that have relatively complex or what we call multifaceted finances, where their financial life is more than just a bank account and a credit card. They have some investments. They have perhaps a rental property that they own. Um, uh, maybe they have uh, retirement accounts, loans. And when their people's financial lives get a little bit more complicated like that, um, we do an outstanding job with Quicken of you know, putting it all together. So that's the, that's the role that we've evolved into where – for simple finances, free offerings from banks and mobile app vendors are a good solution. And for people with multifaceted finances, uh, we're, we're really a great solution. At the time of the announcement, when it was made public that Quicken had been sold to a private equity firm, um, HIG Capital, you had said in the press that Quicken could use some TLC and that um, you were working on to make it as great as it can be. That's not a perfect product. So how are you improving it? Right. So there's sort of three big initiatives uh, in, in Quicken, uh, two of which are quite, you know, should be quite customer visible. One is simply taking the software products that we have today uh, and making them better. So, so we, you know, we had a, a low feature Mac product, which had had a, a small development team, small, a very competent, but a small development team. We have, as I indicated, I think in one of my videos doubled the size of the Mac team. So we're making rapid progress uh, with, with the Mac product, uh, not just adding functionality, but also improving the UI. Uh, and then on the Windows product, uh, we've just been sanding off the rough edges and uh, we have a major look and feel um, enhancement this year we call Project Q, where we're trying to make it uh, look like what it actually is, which is a you know modern, fully capable 21st century software product. So um, just in the products that customers know, we have some really nice enhancements just by you know, doing the obvious, sound, sanding off the rough edges, modernizing the look and feel, adding most asked for functionality in the products. And so that's what we'll be launching in the fall. So that's, that's one thing that we're doing. A second thing that we're doing that's not so visible to customers is we're decoupling from Intuit. So we're a standalone company. You know, we're, you know, we're no ownership by Intuit, but we do have um, some ongoing technical interactions with Intuit in areas like uh, bank download, uh, mobile sync, and authentication. And some of those we're keeping durably, like the bank download technology will leverage from Intuit durably, but the other areas we're replacing. And um, so that's a big job. Uh, it has to be done right because we have to protect the connectivity and the security. Um, we also think there may be some opportunities to simplify 
the experience for customers of using uh, authentication and security technology because we're just solving for Quicken, whereas Intuit was solving for a suite of products that went from you know Mint on the low end to multi-thousand dollar ProTax products at the high end, and there was a single security solution for all of them. So that's the second thing is uh, separating from the Intuit technology in most areas. And our goal is to make that be invisible to customers or maybe a simplification. And then the third area is, I think, you know, anyone who's not been asleep at the switch for a decade realizes that the platform that people start with these days is mobile or filling that the web and the desktop is typically the third choice. And of course, the desktop is where we have our strongest offerings. So uh, we need to shift the emphasis of Quicken so that it puts its best foot forward on mobile and the web. Uh, we're making some nice enhancements to mobile this fall that I think our customers will like. But the, the, the mid to long-term goal is that anything you do on a desktop, you should be able to do interoperably on mobile and on web so that um, Quicken feels more like Evernote where you, know, you can use it on your phone, you can use it on your desktop, you can use it on your tablet, you can use it on the web, and they all share the same data repository. And the way we figured out how to do that, by the way, preserves the option for desktop customers to keep their, their data on the desktop and not synchronize if they're very security conscious and would prefer not to participate in that kind of cloud-based data model. So that's the, you know, that's the other, that's the third big thing. So just to recap, we're making incremental improvements in the products customers are already using, know, and love. And I think those will be nice releases uh, just in a couple of months. Second, uh, mostly invisible to customers, we're separating from Intuit and trying to simplify a few things in the authentication area as we go. And third, you know, over the next couple of years, uh, we're significantly expanding our investment in uh, mobile and then web-based implementations of Quicken with the objective within just a couple of years of having it be fully interoperable on all the platforms. You're totally right, especially that last point about mobile connectivity. I would be curious to hear your perspective, Eric, You know, given that you have such a, a deep, long perspective and history of innovation in, in financial technology. What do you think are the best ingredients today? If somebody wanted to create a really user-friendly, successful product that helps us with our finances, obviously, yes, it has to be mobile-friendly, but where do you see some areas for opportunity? Well, the, the area of opportunity that we see is having a comprehensive capability where you know we'll give you a financial picture even if you have some complexity in your finances. And so that's the, that's the opportunity we're, we're targeting. You know, obviously, there, there are loads of other opportunities that many other companies have pursued. Um, you know, there's, uh, I think I already referred to uh, lighter weight mobile products, which make it very easy to get started, minimal data entry for monitoring your transactions, and Intuit's Mint is a good example of that. Um, I think there's some excellent innovative products in the investing space, that you know, couple um, financial management with uh, investment accounts and services, the so-called robo-advisor services. Um, I think there's been a lot of innovation in low-friction lending. Um, and uh, you know, I when I was away from Intuit, I was a, you know, a payments investor. So you know, uh, you know, I've seen you know a lot of great apps in the payment space. Some bad ones too, but some great ones also. So uh, those are those are some of the areas. You know, Quicken I think is going to uh, you know stick to the core concept of 
completely solving uh, personal financial management for people with multifaceted finances, but we're open to partnering with companies in some of the spaces I've mentioned, and we'll look to do that as we you know, complete some of our, you know, our project works, notably, you know, getting the separation from Intuit tied off. Oh, that's interesting. That's insight that I hadn't read anywhere else. Maybe uh, you have some acquisitions in your future. That would be, that would make a lot of sense. I, yeah, I wasn't thinking so much acquisitions. Um, I think more partnerships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, acquisitions aren't ruled out, but I, 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 what's front of mind for me would be partnerships. Just about every investment and retirement plan is created by men for men, which is fine unless you're a woman. Women still earn less than men for now. We're more aware of risk. We're more likely than men to pause our careers to raise a family. And unfortunately, we typically retire with less wealth than men, even though statistics show that we live longer. That's why there's Elevest, created for women, run by and designed by women. Elevest helps women invest based on their specific goals, like buying a home, starting a business, raising a family, or just retiring like a boss. So Money listeners can visit elevest.com slash so money and have an investment plan created at no cost, customized to your specific goals. Invest like a woman with Elevest. E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T. That's LFS.com slash so money. So tell us a bit about your journey. You seem to always um, be gravitating to the space of you know personal finance, technology. When you graduated from Harvard Business School, was this something that you foresaw or that you you know you just fell into a really great opportunity and it just went from there? I would say it's more the latter. Um, you know, I I think I, I do have Harvard Business School to thank a little bit for having ended up in Silicon Valley. They had a great entrepreneurship car course um, that had an impact on me. I did a field study in the spring of my second year on the hard disk controller business, which uh, you know wasn't my future, but it actually brought me out to Silicon Valley and you know gave me some exposure to the world of uh, venture back. Uh, technology companies. So uh, I have that to thank it for. I ended up going to Bain & Company, uh, which in those days was thought of more like BCG and McKinsey. Now, of course, it's better known for Bain Capital, but you know it has this, has had then and has now a significant consulting business. And while I was at Bain, I had some clients who were in the technology space, notably actually Western Digital, a survivor in the uh, disc, disc business. My dad uh, used to work there. Yeah. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. This is uh, this is in the 83, 84, 85 um, time, long, long time ago. What was uh, Silicon Valley like in the 80s and 90s? Well, you would know in the nine so much, I guess, yeah, the 80s. How, I mean, gosh, talk about evolution, right? How much was a house in 1983 in Silicon Valley and how much is it today, that same house? Our first house in Palo Alto, which was at the low end of the market, was $165,000. Wow. That doesn't so, uh, even get you... A parking space. <laughs> uh, does. I would say just quickly answering your question, what was Silicon Valley like? In the 80s, it was still kind of a hardware place. Mm-hmm. Uh, looked at the 100 c- companies that venture capitalists had funded in 1983, you know, the, the, the 100 li- largest valuations, you know, maybe, you know, 30 or 50 of them would have been, you know, disc, disc drive companies were a big deal in the 80s. 
uh, or actually, you know, hardware personal computer companies or mini computer companies and chip companies, you know, were huge. Right now, there's just a handful. Uh, but the startup world was, you know, very much a hardware world in the uh, in, in the 80s and, and software didn't come to dominate until maybe late, maybe the early 90s. So that, that's probably the biggest difference I'd, I'd call out. Yeah. Wow. Um, I love watching that show, Silicon Valley on HBO. Is it, uh, I mean, you're in the midst of it now, sort of. Does that show ring true? Have you watched an episode before of it? It's pretty good. Yes. I watched a few episodes. And of course, that's about the modern era, right? Yes. That's not about the, uh, the the 80s or 90s. And, uh, you know, it's a caricature of Silicon Valley, you're but right. there's a truth to it to make it quite uh, quite amusing for those of us who live in the Bay Area, obviously, as well as probably many other people. It is so, entertaining. So. so tell us what's your personal financial philosophy, money mantra, as someone who has been behind Quicken since its yeah. inception, basically. Um, I'm curious to hear your own, per- own personal take on money. My personal take is very much to do it myself. I'm a do-it-yourself person, and in order to kind of enable that, I, I tend to keep things simple. So, you know, I avoid, you know, trusts and partnerships and, you know, complex structures. Uh, I manage my own investments directly. I, I don't have a money manager. Um, and so I figure that I'm good enough at uh, that, that, you know, I can, um, you know, I, I can get results uh, that are good enough on my own that it's not worth paying you know, management fees and the complexity of having third-party advisors. So the one area, of course, I leave out, you know, I do invest in, you know, in venture funds, for example, which is a form of intermediated investment. But in terms of public, you know, publicly traded securities, I, I, I don't use an investment manager. You, know, what, you, met, you, you mentioned cool. robo-advisors earlier. You think that's here to stay and that's going to be more of the, uh, the gravitation that people are going to be going more towards the virtual help than one-on-one? Well, I think, you know, the... The model that robo-advisors are displacing, as far as I understand, is kind of the, the wrap account with a you know, one or even a 2% asset fee, which I think was not a good model. I think it'd be hard to find an investment manager who is so good, uh, you know, in, in a, particularly in you know, broad asset classes, that uh, they, they deliver a lot of value, uh, deliver enough value to pay for fees at that level. I think, you know, robo-advisors with fees in the you know, the point, point five, point seven five range, um, I think have a better chance of, uh, of paying for themselves. So I think it's a positive trend for consumers. Uh, there, uh, I, I should also add that there are two elements of having an advisor, uh, at least. One is making investment decisions, and that's an area where I think, you know, well-educated people can do a good job by themselves. Another area, however, is applying discipline and keeping people in the market all the time and not panicking when there's a market downturn and, you know, maintaining a steady investment program. So uh, I think that's a component of both a, per, a, a human and a robo advisor, which I'm sort of discounting because, you know, that's not a service I need because I, I have that discipline myself. But I could see that for a lot of investors, just that component by itself could be a big, a big element of value. Mm-hmm. That's a really, you raise a, a really good point. I mean, I think that like I, I work in media and I feel like consumers don't want to spend money for accessing media and, and information, you know, where some newspapers and online newspapers are creating paywalls 
I'm not sure how many people are rushing to give the New York Times their, their money to, to read the, you know, to read more stories than they want. Um, and I feel like in the fintech space, free sells, you know, free is what is sexy and, and people are getting to be very, they expect it now. And when you ask them to pay 30, 40, $50, um, they are hesitant. So, and I know that Quicken is a much more robust product and software than the average technology. Um, but have you seen that as being kind of a hurdle, uh, especially with the millennials? They don't want to pay for anything. <laughs> so uh, you're, you're raising a great point, which is, um, you know, does the Quicken business model uh, survive into the 21st century with a, a, a new generation of uh, personal finance users? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. And it's not so much a question of generation, you know, people in the last millennium paid for software, people in this millennium don't, as people with simple finances can get free solutions, which do a good enough job. People with complex finances, you know, can't track those with free solutions. And so their alternative to paying $75 for a copy of Quicken might be paying $1,000 to a financial planner or advisor or, or for, you know, or, or even more. I mean, the value I get out of, I mean, so I, I mean, there, there are plenty of people who sort of, instead of having a family office, have Quicken. And, you know, it's tens of thousands of dollars of value. Right. That's, that's rare. But I think there is a wide swath of people who get, you know, significant value that, would, that would, they'd have to hire expensive human resource, you know, human agents to provide if they didn't have a product like Quicken. And that's a function of how much is going on in their financial life, not when, you know, which decade they were born in. That's a really good point. Do you have any sense of how much people's finances improve or at least how much their um, ability to set goals and stay within budget improves once they become a Quicken user? I'm curious to just see the the correlation. You know, you engage yeah. with a really useful financial tool, your finances improve. Is that really the case? You know, I wish we had the answer to that question. Um, and so one issue is right now Quicken is a desktop product. So, you know, we don't even, even if we wanted to look at it, for the most part, we don't see that data. Um, we do see you know, some, some users, you know, use investing.quicken.com. And so their investments are visible. And so we could have opt-in privacy settings that allowed us to look at that. Um, then I think we would inevitably stumble, stumble onto a question I, I alluded, I think you already alluded to, which is, you know, whether it's correlation or causation, because probably people who are more disciplined and careful and thoughtful are more likely to buy Quicken. So you, you really want a blind test of, you know, two samples of the population and sort of force, if you could, you know, one not to use Quicken and allow the other to use Quicken and then measure them over a long period of time. <laughs> so that's the study one would like to do. Um, it's a and, wishful question. It's an ambitious question. I know. It's like people who listen to this podcast. It's like you've already made the effort to, to join a financial podcast. You probably are – you care more than the average person about money. I would say the, – the, the one thing I'd add – so I, I basically said, no, we don't have that data. It would be cool to have it, uh, but pretty complicated. I do think we have qualitative data. We have lots of users who say, you know, my financial life works because of Quicken. And, you know, I don't know what I'd do without it. So you know, that's a subjective judgment, but uh, there, there are plenty of people for whom it's the financial operating system for their lives. And I think it's fair to say that for those people, they're getting better outcomes. But I'd love to have the, 
you know, the, the AB test that you, that you pop. <laughs> I think it can be done, right? You just, we would take a lot of, like, you know, like you said, controlling. You want to partner with us on that? <laughs> you want to you pick some of your podcast users and we'll, we'll Okay, give so just uh, join after the show. We'll give everybody your email and no kidding. <laughs> we'll get the survey done. I think it could get you a lot of good press because I don't think there's been, I've never, I mean, I'm, I'm always looking for interesting studies about correlation um, in, the, in financial behavior and this would be interesting to examine. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, seriously, if you're open to you know finding a way to do a research project like that, uh, in cooperation with us, we, uh, we would be very intrigued. Okay. Well, so Eric, you know, tell us a little bit more about personally, you know, your financial successes, maybe a failure you uh, experienced, or maybe maybe not failure, but lesson learned the hard way. Um, going back to even when you were first starting out, um, what would be a lesson learned the hard way? And then what would you say was your so money moment? We'll finish there. The so money moment is always, I ask guests all the time to share the pinnacle of their financial experiences, something that really exemplifies hard work and um, stick to itness and, you know, like the, the financial stars aligned. But yeah. first, a mistake. <laughs> so um, I, I think probably the most blatant financial mistake I made was when I was right out of, right out of college, had my first job, had a little bit of money to invest. And my grandfather had been in the oil business in Oklahoma in the 1920s or something. And, you know, sort of earned a living successfully doing that, even though no one else in the family did that. And I kind of had this romantic vision of, you know, the oil business being good. So when my broker at uh, Tucker Anthony called me up and said, we got this partnership called South Ranch. You should put $5,000 into it. I said, OK. Uh, and uh, so, A, there's timing because you might remember that oil prices you know, plummeted in the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, e, it was just I wouldn't say it was a scam, but it was, you know, it was it was a structure, you know, built to take advantage of. Um, uninformed investors like me. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it kind of went, it sort of went to, it didn't go to zero, but it sort of withered away and was just a, a failed, a completely failed investment. So, and I just, I invested on kind of gut feel without thinking and, you know, sold by a broker. And so, yeah, oh, it no. was, that was, that was good. That was good learning. For How me. old were you? Well, in the 80s. So you were just, you know, you were young in. Yeah. So I, I got graduated from college in 70. Maybe I was 1980. Yeah. So that was, that was a, a clear mistake. And so your approach to investing now is just like a lot of my listener, a lot of my listeners and gas, it's passive index funding or are you aggressively in the market? So I have a mix. So, you know, some, some of my investments are index funds, you know, mutual, uh, uh, ETFs, yeah. And, uh, bond funds. But, um, you know, I, I, I have made kind of focused technology investments because, you know, I work in the space and the example that I give you where, you know, my observation of business trends was successful was I was in the venture business for 10 years and I, my, the companies I loved were payment startups. The companies that were successful were SaaS software companies. So there's a lesson in that. But I love those payments companies. And they all found the same frustration, which is, uh, you know, they would at some point they'd run into the, the, the card, the card oligopolies, Visa, MasterCard, American Express Discovery, who have immense market power. 
And it's you, you might know that as a consumer, but if you're in the business, you're really aware of how much market power those companies have. So after experiencing that frustration as an investor, when Visa and MasterCard uh, became public companies rather than bank-owned associations in 2007 and 2008, um, I thought, you know, I should invest in these companies, even though in 2008, at least, the financial world was coming apart. And so I did. And, you know, I just looked eight years later, they're up six to seven X, both of them. So, you know, that was, you know, it's not like a Google return, but I think, you know, <laughs> that's a triple in the in the, in the investing space. Uh, so, and, and so that that's an example of where uh, I've made, you know, target investments based on you know, observation of particular industry segments. Mm-hmm. What's your so money moment? So clearly the, you know, the, the biggest financial success I've had was, you know, being, having the good fortune to be an early employee at a highly yes. successful company into it. And, you know, that was, you know, X parts, dumb luck and, you know, two parts, you know, contributing to the, you know, the success of the company and who knows what else. Um, but I don't, I don't quite know what the, what a so money moment is, but if I had to speak about the so money moment for our company, uh, I think what I'd say is, um, you know, Quicken Inc. is so money because our mission is to help people lead healthy financial lives. And uh, that's, you know, that's what I try to do as an individual. That's what we try to do as a company. And I think that's what we'll continue trying to do, you know, uh, as we you know, rejuvenate this great business. All right, Eric Dunn, thank you so much. We'll be keeping an eye out, of course, for Quicken and all the, the latest and greatest. Well, pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Eric Dunn for joining us, CEO of Quicken Inc. If you missed any of this, just head over to somoneypodcast.com where you can find the audio, download the transcript, leave a comment to learn more about Quicken. Their website is, of course, quicken.com and then their Twitter is at Quicken. Tell us what you think. If you're a Quicken user, I'm curious to hear your experiences. And if you have any questions for me for the Friday episodes, you know what to do. Click on Ask Farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. Leave me your thoughts, your questions, and we'll... Uh, connect sooner than later. Thanks for tuning in and I hope your day is so money. Money.